Welcome to the Loop Ventures Liquidity Podcast, where we talk about all things venture liquidity related. So that's IPOs, direct listings, secondaries, and unicorns. This is Doug Clinton from Loop Ventures, and I'm joined by my partner, Gene Munster, also a partner at Loop Ventures. So the first topic today, Gene, SoftBank reported its regular financial update for investors came out yesterday. And this whole discussion is probably old news at this point. They wrote down WeWork by $4.6 billion. The thing that I thought was really interesting from their update was there was a bit of a conflicting message in the sort of prepared presentation. At one point, Masa kind of talked about using profitability as more of a barometer for valuing investments in the Vision Fund. But at the same time, he also said the vision of the Vision Fund will remain the same. And so I'm curious about your take. What do you think happens with the Vision Fund now that we've kind of gotten out of the forest with WeWork? Do they go more conservative or do you think the vision stays the same? I think they are going to be more conservative too. There was this other aspect in there too, where they talked about guidelines to ensure good governance of its portfolio companies. And I think there's a level of conservatism around good governance as well. And so any venture capital fund wants to be a visionary and wants to make big bets. And undoubtedly, they will still move towards that. I think the substance of where things went off the rails was Sopping's done a great job of finding companies early, historically. The part that they've struggled with is these later rounds and doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on some companies that they shouldn't have. And so I think that in those later rounds, they'll be more disciplined. I suspect that profitability will be a more important topic and undoubtedly governance will be. I think that this will be something that will fundamentally make some changes to SoftBank. And kind of as part of that too, if you just step back at a high level and look at that six-month update that they gave at the end of September, the first slide outside of the disclosures was an image of uh, troubled waters, kind of choppy seas. And the second slide had two images. One said something to the effect of significant decreases in profit, and the other said, we work problem. And the reason why I mention that, even though it's subtle, and think about it in the context of what they're looking for, I think this was, especially for the culture around SoftBank, this was an important turning point for them acknowledging the mistakes. Now, just be surprised if they don't actually make changes after making such a effort to acknowledge the mistake. And I think it, you mentioned they've historically had some successes in going early. I mean, their biggest success as a company making investments is Alibaba. I mean, just a legendary venture investment. And it feels in some ways like they've done a great job investing capital in the past in more limited quantities. I think the fund that they work out of the sort of parent company is like three or four billion and the vision funds, obviously a hundred billion. And so do you think part of the issue is they just went as many investors tend to do when they have success, they go bigger and bigger and they just went too big. They got outside of their core competency and maybe they'd be better off just kind of doing things like they used to do with Alibaba. 
I totally agree with that. I think that they got big and had to put money to work. And to do that, you had to kind of shift outside of your violin concerto. And I think that is part of this. They still have these huge funds, so they got to put money to work. And so undoubtedly, they're going to be a big force in later stage. But if you're going to ask me what is their sweet spot, it's finding companies earlier versus investing just before going public. One of the other things in the presentation that they talked about was a little bit of the framework of how they want to value their venture investments at the Vision Fund. And they built this framework and explained this framework where they gave an example, if a company is generating free cash flow and free cash flow is really the key metric that they harped on. We talk about pushing companies to go to profitability and venture now. But they gave the example of a billion in free cash flow. If you take kind of the average free cash flow multiple of some top tier internet companies like Square, Google, Facebook, Alibaba as a comp group, you can kind of get to a general 25 multiple with 30% annual growth. So you put a 25 multiple on the 1 billion in free cash flow, and then they kind of discount it for a 30% IRR and then a 40% discount rate, which means if a company was generating a billion in free cash flow five years out, they would pay about $4 billion for that company. I actually went in and I did the quick math. If they took that framework and they did it for WeWork, when they paid the peak valuation of WeWork, which was $47 billion, it would have suggested that SoftBank thought WeWork could generate $13 billion or so in free cash flow in like a five or six year period. And to put that in perspective, Facebook will probably do something like $26 billion in free cash flow this year, much you know, higher margin business, very different comp. So do you think that this framework, Gene, is something that they've said that they used this in the past, but do you think this is really something they've used in the past? Do you think this is the new way to think about venture valuations from their perspective? I think it's the newer way of thinking about venture valuations. Unfortunately, that wouldn't have yielded the kind of value that they had. Great work on your end at dissecting this. And ultimately, I think that you know, when you put those kind of numbers at $13 billion into perspective versus Facebook as you did, it's just hard to imagine, I guess, that they'd have gotten there with a little bit more of an asset-heavy type of a model. So the answer to your question is, I think this is new. I don't think that the valuation that they expected to get from WeWork actually went through this model. Yeah, we'll see, I guess, whether or not they enforce that into the future. It's a solid framework, but I also think it's really hard sometimes to do that and do venture well. Like I think about the story of Priceline where there's kind of been this commentary around these negative gross margin companies and questioning, you know, should they go to profitability sooner? I remember Priceline actually was one of maybe the first negative gross margin venture backed companies back in, you know, the early 2000s or late 99s. And obviously, it turned out to be one of the biggest internet companies ever. And so the idea of having poor cash flows and negative gross margins, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad company. I think we should be careful that the narrative doesn't shift to that. But the idea of can you build a strategy to go from negative gross margins where you really prove out that customers love your product and they'll keep coming back and using your product even when you do raise prices and have higher margins? I think that's the real question we need to answer in conjunction with this sort of free cash flow exercise. I agree. Before we shift, one that I just want to mention too is when we think about this whole vision fund and the 
the story here and the negativity around it is in that update they did mention, SoftBank did mention that since the fund's inception in 2017, it has investment gains of uh, $11 billion. They talk about this kind of 13% return. So I think it's a good note to end on is that they're still doing something right. Yeah, the, the fund is still up is the bottom line. One of the other investments in the fund that they talked about in their update is Uber. And they reported earnings this week. And I mean, we're going back to this story about profitability again. It's the hot topic. But Dara, the CEO, mentioned that efficiency and profitability are really the new priorities now at Uber. Obviously, Lyft said pretty much the same thing last week. I mean, are we just sort of at the talk is cheap phase at this point? It feels like every company that is not profitable is now coming out with a narrative to really push profitability. When do you think investors sort of adjust and start to give companies credit for that? It's surprising how fast the verbiage has changed. And I would put in that category that investors are taking a wait and see attitude. The outlook from Uber would suggest that they're going to get to an adjusted profitability a couple quarters ahead of what Lyft had said a few weeks prior. And Lyft stock traded up 9% when they had talked about that kind of end of 2021 adjusted profitability. And Uber stock was down 9% the next day and then traded off maybe because of the lockup and the, the following day after that. So a more optimistic message from Uber which was not received as optimistic by the street. And I think that it comes down to that theme of talk is cheap. And ultimately, when you look at what is in front of Lyft versus Uber, it's just easier to convince, I think, an investor that Lyft is going to get there, just given they don't have as many moving parts. In Uber's case, you have Eats, Freight, some of the other initiatives outside with ATG. You've got a global business. It's just harder, I think, to take that to the bank, that expectation. So it is the topic of the day, attracted profitability. And I think the public's reaction to Uber's results show that investors are still skeptical about the language. And how much of a factor, you think about the stock reaction the next day, how much of a factor do you think was the commentary about profitability and the business versus this sort of lockup boogeyman? The people knew the lockup was going to come, so that wasn't a surprise. So I think majority of it is, I think, investors, I don't know what they would have wanted to hear. I think Uber said all the right things, but the reality is that their business model is different. And it kind of puts some, a little bit of uh, structure on that is that Eats, which is 25% of Uber's business, grew in September at 64%. Their ride sharing grew in September at 19%. So this is a faster growing segment, smaller, but faster growing segment, but it is weighing on profitability. And so they're of an 11% take rate on ETH versus 23% on rides. So what do all those numbers mean is that at the end of the day, as investors are stepping back and saying that the fastest growing part of your segment is what's uh, dragging down profit the most. So in order to get to profitability, you need to make some hard decisions around the fastest part of your business. And that just leaves investors with a more conservative view of the company. And I think that's what we saw in the stock action after the report. Yeah. So the question is, is growth really the mandate that the buy side wants from these companies? And Dara had a quote that I'd love your take on, which is, he said, there's a fundamental revaluation of revenue growth and the value of profits in an increasingly uncertain world. 
And I think that the appetite for the unknown and for high risk in the public markets has just gone down and that has consequences. That was him explaining why Uber stock has done what it has done in the public markets. Do you think that's true though? Do you think that the public markets are re-evaluating how they think about revenue growth and profitability? Or do you think it's just like this wave of all these companies that are just so focused on growth and maybe didn't even really tell much of a story about profits until now? Is it that they just had the story wrong? I think the majority of it's the latter. It's just we've had this wave of companies that haven't been as profitable and have a long track to profitability. The best public analog, of course, is Tesla. And you just look at how wild that ride has been over the last three years, that stock. I think that that's representative. That should have been a pretty clear indicator to everyone that Lyft and Uber were going to have these kind of unpredictable moves. And so I think it's more about the public investors of their view has largely been unchanged. I think it's more the sequencing of the type of companies that are going public. We covered Yelp when it went public. I think this was in 2012. But I just remember there was always a question when they came out and we sort of were supporters at some of the time for the stock from the buy side of like, how can this company actually get to be profitable? Because they weren't profitable at the time. And I always remember the company always talked about this 30% long-term EBITDA margin target. And they're at around 20-ish percent EBITDA margins now. So they've kind of delivered on that promise, but it's been seven years and the stock has had ups and downs since then. And so I think part of it is getting the story right, making sure that you tell the story right, and that the buy set actually buys it is a really hard part for these new companies to do. And at some point you do have to deliver on what you're promising to the street. So I think we're kind of in that phase now with the Ubers and the Lyfts. Yeah. And maybe to put some timelines on some of those changes back in the the Yelp example too. And at the time they went public, we would talk to companies before they went public and this message that you want to be increasing margins, kind of going in, getting closer to profitability or just raising margins as you kind of escape from being a private to a public company, but have some framework where you can move your margins higher. And I remember the ones that weren't making money, we would talk about kind of a two-quarter try to get to profitability in a couple quarters after being public. Now it's probably a year, but it's not two years. And I think that's the substance of the friction here. Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway is I think that target is constantly changing too. You know, when it was two quarters, we were just coming off of, you know, 2008, 2009, and maybe the market really was at that time much more conservative. So they wanted to see profitability earlier. And then maybe two years ago, euphoria was a little bit too high. We had the tailwind of really high private valuations then and still do now. But maybe it was two years then to your point. And now we're kind of maybe in a year bandwidth or something like that. So understanding what that time frame is, I think is going to be really important for companies that want to go public in the next year plus. Let's keep talking about Uber-related things. Travis Kalanick is back with a new company called Cloud Kitchens. I just saw that they raised about $400 million on a $5 billion valuation. And so the company Cloud Kitchens is something called a ghost kitchen, where I think basically what they're trying to do is sort of create this economy where restaurants or other local product providers can leverage this DoorDash Postmates kind of last mile infrastructure. So he's sort of trying to 
bootstrap something off of that infrastructure. Obviously, Travis has a reputation for building huge businesses. Uber is a success for him, certainly, regardless of what it's done so far in the public markets. But what do you make of this valuation, Gene? $5 billion on kind of essentially what is your first institutional raise? The word that comes to mind is ridiculous. You're setting yourself up, I think, for some tough conversations down the road as the company evolves with other investors. And, you know, this idea about kind of starting out slow and gaining momentum and building momentum with higher fundraises, it seems to kind of be in contrast to that, what Travis is doing here. And I think it also is testimony to how strong his brand is that able to raise that kind of money that quickly. So, you know, he's a believer in first mover advantage and that all businesses can be replicated and there's a land grab going on. So grab as much as you can as fast as possible. But I'm fully supportive of the amount that he raised, take the money and build. But that valuation just gets harder and harder to build for the next round. So that's whatever I was thinking. Great move though, too. I just, I love the business, the concept of leveraging what all these other players are kind of beating themselves up, building that last mile infrastructure and and really going after these ghost kitchens. Yeah, I love the space too. I think it's really smart. To put that $5 billion in perspective, the valuation, even if he has an Uber-like outcome, and I'm talking about Uber today, not at its peak, but it's $46 billion market cap. That's a you know 9x return kind of potential on your money, which as a venture investor at the later stage, I mean, that's not bad, but it's not great when you're thinking about building a portfolio. It feels like... You know, when you think about upside, and Uber is obviously one of the biggest outliers, right, in terms of outcomes, it's easy to justify the valuation on his reputation, but it's hard to justify the valuation, I think, in terms of thinking about outcomes, truly. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned, Gene, about the kind of this space, like taking that capital and really trying to build a moat. And obviously, Travis has done this before really well with Uber. And Bill Gurley has this thing where he's talked about capital is a weapon. And there's certain businesses that do well where that is the case. I think ride sharing is one. The DoorDash Postmates kind of delivery trend is another where you can really use capital as a weapon. But what is your take on maybe just that delivery trend and leveraging capital as a weapon there? Are these businesses that ultimately can show good profitability. We just had Grubhub have some fairly disappointing numbers, I think, because of competition from DoorDash last week. I think there's an opportunity there. It is a more asset-heavy type of opportunity. So what Travis is doing is essentially going into major cities and finding cheap real estate close to dense areas and putting these ghost kitchens in. So uh, it sounds like that procuring the real estate is part of it. And there's obviously that falls into the category of WeWork-ish, CapEx-heavy type of uh, approaches. So that was a consideration. How do you scale a business that kind of requires finding good real estate too? And so, again, the growth rates from Eats, Uber Eats, 64% versus ridesharing at 19%, there's clearly something going on here. And I just don't put this in the category. It kind of comes back to what's the right valuation on this. This needs to happen. And you're going to see more of this. We meet with large companies that are loosely related to this space. And this is an intense area of focus for them. So I think you're going to hear a lot more about it. I just don't know that it justifies the valuation right out of the gate. The thing I always wonder about these businesses is 
if you think about the restaurant world, like we know that restaurants tend to have fairly low profit margins, these asset heavy businesses, as you've described them for reasons, you know, they have these lower margins versus software companies where obviously the incremental price of reproducing a piece of software is effectively zero. It's why there's such high gross margin businesses and such great businesses to invest in in general. But the market, I think for some time with Uber and DoorDash's success, it feels like people have gotten really excited about some of these more physical type problems. Are we crazy though to think that these companies could ultimately create like really attractive profit margins that ever compete with a Google or a Facebook just because they're using software for what's really a very hard physical problem. I mean, Amazon is using software to solve really hard physical problems and they're retail too, obviously, but their margins aren't phenomenal. So are we crazy to kind of think that you can build phenomenal margins in these inherently low margin businesses just because you're layering good software on top of them? The simple answer is yes, we're crazy. Not that they can't be profitable, not that they can't have growth and return be a, a good investment at some stage, but to tell a story that we're going to build some layer here that's going to create software-like margins, I think is ambitious and that's being generous. Okay, maybe touch a nerve here, but let's apply it to Tesla. Is that a fair thing to say for Tesla too, or is that case different? So I think the case is... Different there in the sense that they are a hardware company that happens to be in transportation is selling software on top of it. So in the case of kind of the future of ghost kitchens, there's not like a software layer that's being plugged on top of it. Tesla has this full self-driving stack that is just going to continue to evolve and continue to gain a greater part of the value of a vehicle. So I feel that you know Tesla is not going to have margins like Google, but it could have margins similar to Apple. It's a fair point. Well, let's leave it there. It all comes back to valuation as the bottom line. And any company can be a great investment at the right price or a bad investment at the wrong price. And we will talk to you next time on Liquidity. 